Hi, this is Claudia Opper. Welcome to an episode of Audio Law, the law podcast for busy people, brought to you by Illustrated Law. If you find this podcast helpful, please consider donating to the show. You can do so by going to illustratedlaw.com. You'll see a green button on the homepage that says donate. By giving a dollar, two dollars, whatever you're able to spare, it helps us be able to keep creating helpful episodes like this one. With that, let's go ahead and get into today's case, which is Whitaker v. Sanford, 110 Main 77 from the year 1912. And this will be a case where we really re-examine the conditions of false imprisonment and see whether moral influence has a place in the false imprisonment charge. Let's get going with the facts of the case. The case shows that for several years prior to 1910, at a locality called Shiloh in Durham in this state, there had been gathered together a religious sect of which the defendant was at least the religious leader. They dwelt in a so-called colony, There was a similar colony under the same religious leader at Jaffa in Syria. The plaintiff was a member of this sect, and her husband was one of the ministers. For the promotion of the work of the movement, as it is called, a yacht club was incorporated, of which the defendant was president. The yacht club owned two sailing yachts, the Kingdom and the Coronet. So far as this case is concerned, these yachts were employed in transporting members of the movement back and forth between the coast of Maine and Jaffa. The plaintiff, with her four children, sailed on the coronet to Jaffa in 1905. Her husband was in Jerusalem, but came to Jaffa and there remained until he sailed a year later, apparently to America. The plaintiff lived in Jerusalem and Jaffa as a member of the colony until March 1909. At that time, she decided to abandon the movement and from that time on ceased to take part part in in its exercises or to be recognized as a member. She made her preparations to return to America by steamer, but did not obtain the necessary funds, therefore, until December 24, 1909. At that time, the kingdom was in the harbor at Jaffa, and the defendant was on board. On Christmas Day, he sent a messenger to ask the plaintiff to come on board. She went, first being assured by the messenger that she should be returned to shore. The defendant expressed a strong desire that she should come back to America on the kingdom rather than in a steamer saying, as she says, that he could not bear the sting of having her come home by steamer, he having taken her out. The plaintiff fearing, as she says, that if she came on board the defendant's yacht, she would not be let off until she was, quote, one to the movement, unquote, again, discussed that subject with the defendant and he assured her repeatedly that under no circumstances would she be detained on board the vessel after they got into port, and that she should be free to do what she wanted to the moment they reached shore. Relying upon this promise, she boarded the kingdom on December 28th, 
and sailed for America. She was treated as a guest and with all respect. She had her four children with her. The defendant was also on board. The kingdom arrived in Portland Harbor on the afternoon of Sunday, May 8, 1910. The plaintiff's husband, who was at Shiloh, was telephoned by someone and went at once to Portland Harbor, reaching the yacht about midnight of the same day. The coronet was also in Portland Harbor at that time. Later, both yachts sailed to South Freeport, reaching there Tuesday morning, May 10th. From this time until June 6th, following the plaintiff's claims that she was prevented from leaving the kingdom by the defendant in such manner as to constitute false imprisonment. So, the issue here is the implied issue of whether there was false imprisonment or not. Let's keep going with the reasoning. The court instructed the jury that the plaintiff to recover must show that the restraint was physical and not merely a moral influence, that it must have been actual physical restraint in the sense that one intentionally locked into a room would be physically restrained, but not necessarily involving physical force upon the person. That it was not necessary that the defendant or any person by his direction should lay his hand upon the plaintiff. That if the plaintiff was restrained so that she should not leave the yacht kingdom by the intentional refusal to furnish transportation as agreed, she not having it in her power to escape otherwise, it, it would, would be a physical, a physical restraint, restraint and unlawful imprisonment. We think the instructions were apt and sufficient if one should, without right, turn the key in a door and thereby prevent a person in the room from leaving, it would be the simplest form of unlawful imprisonment. The restraint is physical. The four walls and the locked door are physical impediments to escape. How is it different when one who is in control of a vessel at anchor within practical rowing distance from the shore who has agreed that a guest on board shall be free to leave, there being no means to leave except by rowboats, wrongfully refuses the guest the use of a boat. The boat is the key. By refusing the boat, he turns the key. The guest is as effectually locked up as if there were walls along the sides of the vessel. The restraint is physical. The impassable sea is the physical barrier. A careful study of the evidence leads us to conclude that the jury were warranted in finding that the defendant was guilty of unlawful imprisonment. This, to be sure, is not an action based upon the defendant's failure to keep his agreement to permit the plaintiff to leave the yacht as soon as it should reach shore, but his duty under the circumstance is an important consideration. It cannot be believed that either party to the agreement understood that it was his duty merely to bring her to an American harbor. The agreement implied that she was to go ashore. There was no practical way for her to go ashore except in the yacht's boats. The agreement must be understood to mean that he would bring her to land or allow her to get to land by the only available means. The evidence is that he refused her a boat. 
His refusal was wrongful. The case leaves not the slightest doubt that he had the power to control the votes if he chose to exercise it. It was not enough for him to leave it to the husband to say whether she might go ashore or not. She had a personal right to go on shore. If the defendant personally denied her the privilege, as the jury might find he did, it was a wrongful denial. It is shown that on several occasions, the defendant told the plaintiff she could have a boat when she wished, but it is also shown by testimony, which the jury might believe that each time she made request for a boat to be used at that time, she was refused. The plaintiff did not ask the captain or other officers of the yacht for a boat. These officers testified that they had authority to let anyone have the use of a boat, and that without consulting the defendant. We do not think the defendant can justly claim that she could have asked the officers under him if he had himself denied her a boat. And in the one specific case shown in the evidence, when she did ask the captain for a boat to go on shore, he referred the discussion of the matter to the defendant. This was at Malta. She apparently believed that an appeal to the officers would be useless. It was not an unreasonable belief. The defendant did not become a witness, but it is claimed for him that after Tuesday, May 10th, he assumed no responsibility whatsoever for the plaintiff and left her in the care of her husband, specifically saying that he would leave it to her husband to say whether she could leave the yacht. From that date, he stayed on the coronet, only coming aboard the kingdom once, though on that occasion, she says he refused her the use of a boat. From that, From that date, date, she was, she in, was the in the company of her husband. Of her though they were not living in marital relations. She went ashore with him. She visited neighboring islands with him. She was trying to persuade him to leave the movement and make a home for her and their children. He was trying to persuade her to become again a member of the movement. When on shore with him, she made no effort to escape. She says she believed it would be useless and thus went back to the yacht with him. She says that when she did ask her husband to put her ashore to leave, he replied, quote, We will see Mr. Sanford about it and see what he says, unquote. She further says that the defendant had told her that he, meaning her husband, quote, couldn't do it, unquote, meaning put her on shore. That concludes the reasoning of this case. Before we get to the holding and the key takeaways, let's hear about this episode's sponsor. This episode has been brought to you by Illustrated Law. Unlike traditional law books, Illustrated Law books have illustrations, practice questions with answers, key takeaway summaries, and so much more. It's the simple way to learn law efficiently. There are currently three illustrated law books available, and those are Constitutional Law, Torts Concepts, and Criminal Procedure, Investigation, and Justice. Order your illustrated law book today by going to Amazon. The books are only $15. Let's get back into Whitaker v. Sanford with the holding of the case. 
Besides the evidence of express personal refusal on the part of the defendant, we think that a jury might well find upon the evidence that the defendant was strongly desirous that the plaintiff should not leave the yacht, probably for the reason that he hoped her husband's influence might lead her back into the movement, that the husband was strongly desirous of the same end, that if she left the yacht, she would be beyond the influence of her husband. That the subject was a matter of conversation between the defendant and the husband. That in view of the relation which the defendant bore to the movement and to the husband, in which of the mystical character attributed to him, in view of the manifest power possessed by him over the minds of the members growing out of a belief which we have already stated, in which the husband shared in, the husband, if not acting by express mutual understanding with the defendant, was the minister of his known will. With the result, the plaintiff was prevented from leaving the yacht. That the defendant was the superior, the controlling factor by an influence intentionally used in keeping her there. That he possessed the key that would unlock the situation and that in violation of his duty, he refused to use it and thus restrained her of her liberty. If all this was true, the defendant is liable to the plaintiff. The verdict should not be set aside on that ground. Here, we have a major takeaway from this case that moral influence is not enough to prove false imprisonment. That being said, restraint includes failure to fulfill a duty to fully furnish an exit. And that brings us to the close of Whitaker v. Sanford. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, tell your friends about Audio Law and check out some of our other episodes. As Audio Law is the law podcast for busy people, I hope this episode helped make your day a little less busy. Thank you.